Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Gospel Tangents is supported by users like you. Please support us at gospeltangents.com or on Patreon. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. And for his daily Mormon history podcast, I'm Rick Bennett. In our next conversation with evangelist Josh Gailey of the Church of Jesus Christ, based in Monongahela, Pennsylvania, we're going to dive into his book, Witnessing Miracles. And we're going to talk a little bit more about where he's going to take on Dan Vogel. And so that'll be a lot of fun. We'll also talk about some of the LDS leaders he quotes in this book. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out today. Yeah. So. Well, let's dive into your book, um, Witnessing Miracles, because this is, I would argue, um, any LDS person would have no problems with this book at all because it's, it's really very LDS orthodox, I would say, except for the Howard, the Hugh Hefner part. <laughs> well, there's no, there's no turf within the Book of Mormon, right? right? The Book of Mormon doesn't belong to a church. So when we're looking at the... Well, we think it belongs to us, uh, but... <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, maybe you need a few of our translations then and there vice versa. <laughs> so we'll take Portuguese, we'll give you Chichewa. How's there that sound? <laughs> <laughs> but for us, the Book of Mormon doesn't belong to a, to a, a one church. It, it's, for, it's a gift for the world. Mm-hmm. It's a gift for all mankind. It's a gift for Israel. You know, so for us, you know, the reason why I think the book applies to any Book of Mormon believer is because uh, I'm not going to mince anything. I'm not going to hide anything that happened in the early history, even stuff that may make me uncomfortable, the excommunications, some of that different stuff that happened. But in regarding the relevance to the question of were the, what is the best explanation for the existence of the Book of Mormon, a critic and a scholar and a believer can all get in the room and say, the Book of Mormon exists. So what are the core facts that we're all going to agree on in the room? And then we can build our arguments of how this book came into existence. What was the method? What was the mode? What was the means? And I use the historical method of inference to the best explanation to boil down all the background, all the data, and all the restoration history down to a set of core facts that Dan Vogel and I would sit at a table and agree with. Mm. Okay. Have you spoken to Dan? 
he, well, I've read his books. Okay. <laughs> and I know he, he and I both agree on all of the core facts that are in my book. Then it's a question on what's the best explanation of the facts. Okay. And that's what Gary Habermas does with the resurrection. That's what William Lane Craig does with the resurrection. They boil down the historical evidence to a set of core facts, and then they infer the best explanation of the facts. And those are core facts that maybe Bart Urban agrees with. Maybe other critics might agree with. So I'm, I'm taking the same approach and overlaying that together. And that's why, whether you're a Latter-day Saint, whether you're part of some of the independent branches, whether you're a community of Christ, or whether you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ— when it comes to the historical grounds of were there really golden plates in a hill in New York, we can address that together. Yeah. That's something we all have in common. Now, one of the things that I thought was really interesting as I learned from this book was you are an archaeology major. I was, yeah. And so yeah. it's getting farther in my rearview mirror, <laughs> but I I did get a degree of archaeological science. So you're from my Penn third archaeologist from Penn State, the Nittany yeah. Alliance. Oh, yes, wow. sir. We uh, are, baby. Happy Valley. Yeah. <laughs> um, I won't talk about Joe Paterno, but anyway. <laughs> oh, no. I'm a big Joe Paterno you're fan. You're Joe Pa. All right. All right. Um, so you are my third. Uh, Marianne Clements, archaeologist, and Paul DeBarth is archaeologist. So I love Paul. Paul and Paul's I are, awesome. are good friends. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting to get your background because there's going to be a lot of people, although you do, you did say even Dan Vogel, who doesn't believe in the Book of Mormon, admits there were some sort of plates. Correct. He does. But he, he has a different explanation than maybe you do. Yeah. So his explanation is ad hoc. And he would probably have to admit that if I'd pin him on. I'd love to actually. What do you mean by ad, ad hoc? Ad hoc would mean contrived. Okay. Okay. So there's no historical sources that hint whatsoever that Joseph Smith was spending his time fabricating or forging plates. That's all made up. It's MSU. It's making stuff up. Okay. Okay. So it, it's something that because you, he's going for a natural explanation, but he sees, and one thing Dan Vogel and I totally agree on, is because there's six scribes in the room, because there's 21 different people that handle or see the golden plates and talk about it and publish it. Whether it's unbelievers like a father-in-law, Isaac Hale, or whether it's believers or whether it's new converts, whether it's enemies that were money diggers that went to the hill and were convinced that there's a hole in the ground and start persecuting the Smith household, all the swirling circumstances demonstrate that Joseph had an artifact of the size and weight that is proclaimed by the witnesses. Okay. You have, you know, and I forget the exact counts. Jerry Grover does a great job in his, in his Ziff book, uh, Ziff and the Magic Goggle book mm -hmm. of laying out the witnesses in a similar way and showcasing how seven different ones get the color right. These ones all demonstrate the weight and they're doing it over different decades, over different times. Dem I mean, two different accounts of a, of a random black patina stain, multiple independent attestation of the binding around the of a sealed portion section. It's a real random fact to give over something over a 20-year gap between sources from different people living in different states. So with all that, Dan Vogel looks at that data, and I look at that data, and Richard Lloyd Anderson looks at that, looked at that data and said, oh, there, there really was... 
an artifact of the size and weight and description of the golden plates at the time Joseph Smith claimed to have them. And so that leaves a critical scholar like Dan in the bind to provide an explanation of that. Okay. And his explanation is, well, it, it must be a forged set. Couple of problems with that. One, what forged set? What single person, what single source said, oh, yeah, we saw it, but it wasn't really gold. It was tip. Nobody says anything like that. Mm-hmm. No family member says, oh, yeah, Joseph would disappear for hours and hours and hours in that Cooper shop across the road. Nobody says that. So it's, it's a contrived conclusion because it's a forced naturalistic explanation. My assumptions are this. The, the assumptions that I make are very simple. God exists. If God does not exist, I am wrong. Admittedly. Okay. <laughs> and jo- Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Those are my only two assumptions. With those two assumptions, there is nothing ad hoc or contrived with my explanation that the best explanation of the facts is that Joseph Smith really did have golden plates and there really was an empty stone box in a hill in New York. Can I give just a little bit of the uh, uh, empty tomb and empty stone box comparison? Because it's really fun. Yeah, do it. All right. So, we all know there's a hill, all right? We know that there's, uh, uh, you know, purportedly Joseph goes in 1823 and he meets the angel Moroni and excavates where he's told to excavate, digs out the hill in 1823, pries up the stone box, and lo and behold, golden plates, but it's not going to be another several years until he's actually able to extract them, Right. In the meantime, a lot's going on, you know. So 1823 is the excavation of the hill date. 1827 is the procurement of the plate year. Okay. So you have several year gap in between. Um, I believe... Where Dan Vogel argues he was making plates. Correct. (laughs) Exactly right. Okay. Now, what's interesting is you have former treasure hunters with Joseph, including um, Samuel Lawrence, Willard Chase, others that talk about this time period. They're written about in this time period. And I believe it's Lorenzo Saunders who wrote a very, very interesting two interviews, a letter and some interviews that he gave where he's bashing the Smiths. Oh, I know they didn't have anything. All this stuff years later, years Mm -hmm. after the fact. And when he, he's writing this and one of the inner, it's either the letter or the interview, but the source that I have that he says, well, we knew where the plates were, or it's supposed plates were on the West side of the hill. And he gives the description. He gives the exact decades and decades and decades after the fact, he knew exactly where the hole in the ground was on the hill on the west side where it was sloping, and he gives the description exactly the same way as Joseph and Oliver described it. So there's corroboration from an enemy, from an unsympathetic source. But he goes further. In a different time when he's bashing the situation and trying to dismiss everything, 
he actually says, oh, yeah, we found a hole in the ground exactly where it was supposed to be, but there was no fresh dirt. And I read that, and critics have used that and pulled that out. And I read it, and I go, light bulbs in my head started to go off. I was like, well, that's exactly right. He just proved, or independently, the way the nice way I would say it is, he just independently corroborated Joseph Smith. Because Joseph Smith claimed to excavate years before he procured the artifact. The excavation happened in 1823. The procurement happened years later in 1827. So when Lawrence and uh, Lorenzo Saunders goes to the hill in 1827, he would not have seen a freshly dug set of dirt. It would have looked like something that had been excavated years before and just brushed off. He was exactly right. That's exactly what Joseph Smith claimed. He wasn't trying to corroborate anything, but that's an independent testimony from an unsympathetic source that verifies the fact that there was a hole in the ground that was excavated at the exact time Joseph Smith claimed. That's pretty substantial. Hmm. Interesting. Let's continue on. Like I said, it's been a while since I read this. Um, so you you talk about uh, some of the evidences. Um what else? Do, what else do you peruse the Book of Mormon uh, as a real uh, history of of the American people? Well, one beautiful thing in the Book of Mormon is the fact that it is the gospel statement by Christ in Third Nephi twenty seven, and I absolutely love that. It's one of my favorite sets of verses in the whole text. And in Third Nephi twenty seven, Christ says, "This is my gospel," and that's one of those moments when I just my light bulbs go off. I'm reading. I'm like, okay, because here's a point of criticism, right? How many times, Rick, have you heard the Book of Mormon teaches a different gospel than the Bible? <laughs> Where you've More heard some, yeah, you know, <laughs> you've never responded to any of those, right? <laughs> Me neither. Fingers crossed, right? So I read that. And I thought, okay, let's look at this. So I looked at those verses, 3 Nephi 27, 13 through 16, and Christ goes, this is my gospel, and he goes in, and he gives six points, six very simple points. Jesus came, the condescension of Christ. He obeyed the Lord, obeyed the Father in all things, his perfect obedience, sinless life, right? Point two. Point three, his obedience was perfect even unto his death. He submitted to death, the death of the cross, to atone for our sins, the atonement, the atoning sacrifice that Abinadi talks about and others, you know, but he's not left in the tomb. We know that he rises from the dead. Okay. So you have the crucifixion, you have the resurrection, and ultimately we rise in third Nephi 27 to stand before Jesus Christ to be judged. He's the just judge at the end, according to his own words in third Nephi. So I looked at those six points. I thought, okay, I'm going to go to early gospel statements. And when I go to early, what I mean by that is I'm going to dig into the New Testament text and I'm going to go into the New Testament church and I'm going to find the earliest and most authentic early doctrinal statements or creedal statements or early songs that they would sing that critical scholars of the New Testament would say, yep, the early church taught and believed and memorized this, okay? And one of them is found in Philippians chapter two, and it's a song, and it's a song, and Paul writes it into his uh, letter 
to the Philippians. And scholars date that to just a few years after the resurrection. So Paul's writing something in his letter that predates him, right? In you know, Bart Ehrman would argue for this. You know, a critical New Testament scholar that's unbelieving would argue for this. They would say, oh yeah, no, that that chap, this portion, like verses, I think it's 6 through 11 of chapter 2 of Philippians, is a early New Testament song with some of the earliest doctrines of the New Testament church. Because they're trying to organize, but it's hard. They're getting persecuted. What do we really believe? What did we really see? My brother, all six points, all six points in the song's own words, but also the condescension, the obedience. The, he, it, Paul even says, obedient to death, the death on a cross. He says it perfectly, you know, for the atoning sacrifice, the resurrection, the, it's all there. It's all there. And so the beauty is, and this is part of what's in the book, it's not the number one focus, but it is a chapter in the book, is that according to New Testament critics, the gospel statements from the early New Testament church precisely match, in their own words, not plagiarized, precisely match Third Nephi and Christ's words, which in our Book of Mormon is in red letters. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'm going to tell you guys something. Um, when I was speaking with David Hawking uh, a year or two ago, uh, he came up with a red letter Book of Mormon. And um, apparently there's a big deal in my church about we don't we don't want to because there's you can see red letter editions of the bible where jesus's words are in red letters well i just you can see the shrink wrap is still on it um uh josh just gave me a red letter edition of, of the book of mormon um and some of your apps now are starting to have the red letters. I know our Your app has the red letters. I don't know about Oh, oh no, our app does. <laughs> our app has red letters. I think there's Scripture Central has one that really? might have red letters, or at least it's in development. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know so, that. So yeah. maybe we're going to lay off on that. I don't, I don't, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and impressed that I now have a red letter book of more. Right. Well, too, because I got David Hawkins, too. Awesome. But um, yeah, so very cool. And it even says, Church of Jesus Christ, Monongahela, Pennsylvania there. So. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. But, uh, you know, another thing that I found really interesting from your book was how often you quoted LDS experts <laughs> yeah. from BYU or, or, or even, I put that upside down, um, or even, uh, you know, LDS general authorities, um, because we do like the Book of Mormon. <laughs> well, because of our simple, humble background, we are, and of course, we do have professors today in the church around the country. We do have educated, that has changed, mm -hmm. but because our, our ground roots was so far fundamental and, and basic and simple, you know, we have not built a entire university dedicated for, you know, how, what, how did Ed, Elder um, Maxwell put it? I believe he put it, uh, a trowel in one hand to build the kingdom. And oh, a, it was Holland. A, a, Elder Holland, a yeah. trowel in one hand to build the kingdom and a, a musket in the other hand to def for defense. Right. You know, and uh, I would say yay and amen to that, but, <laughs> but we have not had the resources to do that. So I appreciate 
good New Testament research, whether it's done by Gerd Ludemann in in Europe, and I appreciate good Book of Mormon research, whether it's done at BYU or whether it's done in my backyard. Yeah, so yeah. I'm happy to give credit by anybody that loves the Book of Mormon, publishes something great about it, and if it's relevant to the early eyewitness testimonies of Book of Mormon believing, you know, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, would my book exist without Richard Lloyd Anderson's work? Probably not. Yeah. You know, probably not. And I'm happy to cite him. <laughs> so. so we definitely have a lot in common. I will tell you something else that I thought was really interesting. Um, so I went to attend your church in Florida with Steve Pineaker. Great. Uh, I guess that was a year ago. And we went to to lunch, breakfast, it was kind of a breakfast with uh, one of the members of your church. And uh, it was so funny to me. And I'm I'm curious how often this comes to you because he was talking about he wanted to take one of his kids and have him attend a private school. And it was a Protestant school of some sort, I don't remember. And um, he said, things were going good, we, everything, we were going to get admitted. And then they says to me, do you believe in any scripture other than the Bible? <laughs> I got a I got a cop out for this. <laughs> just close your eyes, recognize that the word Bible in Latin just means books, acknowledge that we just got one more book than them and sign away. <laughs> well, uh, his son his son made the mistake of saying, "Well, yeah, I believe in the yeah, book, book of Mormon." Yeah. And they were like, "Ah, you're out of here." And and I remember the father was talking to me and he said, can you believe that? And I'm like, welcome to my world. <laughs> of course I can believe that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, I mean, you, you would not call yourself Mormon. Correct. Um, do you, when somebody says you're just a Christian, I guess. Well, we would, hopefully if we're doing our job right, it's an opportunity to talk about the restored gospel. Okay. Like when we talk, you know, I'm going to try and steer the conversation away from who we're not as quickly as possible, not because I don't love who you are, my brother, uh -huh. but because I believe we have something special to offer somebody. So when that question comes up, you know, are you Mormon? We quickly say, no, we're not, but we do believe in the Book of Mormon, and hopefully we then start engaging who we are. Okay. You know, and, and that I think can be a great opportunity. Do we sometimes get sheepish? Sure, we all do, you know, <laughs> but I think we can take that as far as we want. My goal would be, hey, let's let's talk about the restoration a little bit. Well, my question is, do you have, I guess, discrimination? Do you feel discrimination when you're talking with, say, an evangelical and and they find out that you believe in the Book of Mormon, even though you say, oh, well, I'm not a Mormon? Yeah. Um, how often does that happen to you? Guilty by association happens all the time. And— we are not shy about our belief in the Book of Mormon. We believe it to be a historical, real, scriptural document that is canon to us. So with that, I'm not going to shy away from that. You know, I was active in, in college in uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. Oh. I did not shy away from who I was as a, as a Book of Mormon believer. And they let believer. you in? They let me in and then quickly handcuffed my ability to— uh, Lead anything, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we in the church, we certainly experience people that because there's such a staunch, whatever you want to call it, of people that have not read the glorious, incredible words that are inside the Book of Mormon for themselves, 
that they don't understand its message, its relevance for our day and time, and its hope for the future, and its and its beautiful witness of Christ and his resurrection. And let me just say it this way, because I said it this way in the book as well. You do not need the Book of Mormon to believe in Christ, but the testimony, if true, at Temple Bountiful of 2,500 people seeing, touching, and feeling the risen Savior in a cross-continental independent attestation of the risen Lord, if that happened, the Book of Mormon offers the world the greatest historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ ever offered mankind, ever offered to mankind. So it should be worth looking into, okay? It should be worth the pursuit. It should be worth you reading or asking the question, because if it's true, then with 100% certainty, the resurrection is true. If the Book of Mormon's false, that doesn't necessarily mean the resurrection did or didn't happen. But if it's true, then the resurrection is certifiably true. And that should be worth every pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. No, no arguments here, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Josh Gailey, an evangelist and author of Witnessing Miracles. In our next conversation, we're going to talk about female priesthood as well as Spicker Tonight church structure. Now, you do have, we should add, women who can be ordained as a teacher, which is a priesthood office. Now, you don't make a, a distinction. A deaconess. A deacon. A deacon. Oh, I thought yeah. it was a teacher as well. No. Oh, it's only a deaconess. Correct. I mean, women teach in our Sunday school classes. They do teach, you know, young people, youth classes around the church, but it, they're not ordained into the office of teacher. The or, only ordained office we have for women in the church is the office of deaconess. We find that in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul is commending Phoebe. My daughter's named Phoebe. Okay. And Paul's commending Phoebe. She was extending the church and allowing them to hold the church meetings in her home under great distress and persecution. Thanks for listening, and I hope you to continue to enjoy Gospel Tangents. Consider becoming a Patreon or go to gospeltangents.com shop, and you can get a cool tie, a hat, or even a nice mug. You can also get a sweatshirt, so check it out at gospeltangents.com shop. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.